You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 225 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, Cultural Phenomena from the Point of View of Spiritual Science, translated by Elizabeth Marshall, 12 lectures given, held in Dornach, I should say, between the 5th of May and the 23rd of September, 1923. Lecture 1, given in Dornach on the 5th of May, 1923, is entitled the nature of the spiritual crisis of the 19th century. Today I'd like to examine from another point of view something which has occupied us a great deal recently. I want to look from an historical perspective at the fact that in the last third of the 19th century there was in effect a critical transformation in the spiritual life of humanity. This critical change revealed itself through various circumstances and these circumstances are essentially the basis for what I would call the misery that has taken hold of humanity in the 20th century, for the foundation of all this misery lies in the spiritual. But first of all, I'd like to characterize briefly the real essence of the spiritual crisis of the last third of the 19th century. In this period, there was, on the one hand, materialism, the materialism of external life, and behind this the materialistic worldview. And the idealistic worldview had been gradually, and we could almost say shamefacedly, completely abandoned. In the penultimate issue of Title de Gertianum, I've tried to point out the discrepancy between this materialism, which often didn't want to be materialistic, but nevertheless was, and idealism. There I briefly sketched how in the last third of the 19th century, idealistic minds who perpetuated the idealism of the first half of the 19th century played a certain role, and how these minds, these thinkers, precisely because they knew spiritual life only in the form of ideas, couldn't stand their ground in the face of all the arguments being developed on the basis of what natural science was confidently asserting natural science, to which there can basically be no objection, was, however, going beyond its proper purview, as if pure natural science were in a position to make judgments on all the concerns of humanity. At the time in question, natural science had its greatest successes, success in relation to cognition, success in relation to external, practical, technical life. And all those wishing to repudiate what didn't conform, in their opinion, to the findings of natural science could point to these successes. So they stood, so to speak, opposite each other, the successful who could competently explain natural science, but who really only represented materialism, as they still do today. And on the other side, those thinkers whose intention was to protect idealism, But these last only knew spiritual life in ideas. They saw, so to speak, behind material beings of the world 
only ideas, and behind the ideas nothing further, no creative spirit. Ideas were for them the ultimate, the last thing they could arrive at. But these ideas are just abstract. They were abstract in the way they were cultivated by these thinkers in the first half of the 19th century, and they stayed abstract when they were developed by idealists in the last third of the 19th century. And so, these idealists with their abstract ideas, which were for them the only spirit, couldn't hold their ground in the face of the concrete findings of natural science and its concomitant worldview. This is the external historic aspect. But the internal historic perspective lying behind it is something different. And this is that materialism, if it is consistent and spirited, even though materialism denies spirit, it can still have great spirit, cannot be disproved. Materialism is irrefutable. It is useless to believe that materialism is a worldview that we can disprove. There is no rationale with which we can prove that materialism is wrong. This is why it is a waste of time trying to refute materialism with theoretical arguments. Why can't materialism be disproved? Now, you see, it can't be disproved for the following reasons. Let's take that piece of matter that in human beings themselves is the basis for intellectual activity, the brain, or, to go a bit further, the nervous system. This brain or nervous system is an image of the spirit. Everything that exists in the human spirit can be found in one form or another, in one process or another, in the brain or the nervous system. So all that we could invoke as an expression of the spirit of the human being can be found reproduced in its material counterpart in the brain, in the nervous system. How could someone who points to this nervous system not say, what you really mean when you speak of the soul or the spirit is all those components of the nervous system? It is as if someone looked at a portrait and said, what is pictured here is all there is of the human being. There is no original. If we couldn't find the person whose portrait it is, then perhaps we couldn't prove that there was an original. The portrait alone doesn't provide us with evidence that there is an original. Similarly, the material image of the spiritual world doesn't provide us with evidence that spirit exists. We cannot disprove materialism. There is only the possibility of pointing to the will to find the spirit itself. We must find spirit completely independently of matter. But in doing so, we then find it working creatively in matter. However, through descriptions of the material, through conclusions reached through the material, we can never find spirit, because matter consists of images of the spirit. This is the secret of why, in a time such as the last third of the 19th century, when people had no direct access to spirit, materialism stood unrefuted, irrefutable. And why? 
for those who couldn't point to the spirit but only to the abstract, lifeless image of spirit, the ideas in human beings, why these idealistic thinkers couldn't stand their ground against contemporary materialistic thinkers. The dispute couldn't be based on evidence and counter-evidence. It took place under the influence of the power, greater or lesser, of the parties involved in the dispute. And in the last third of the nineteenth century, the greater power belonged to those people who could produce as evidence the progress and successes of natural science with its technical achievements, which convinced by their mere existence. Of course, those people who, as idealistic thinkers, such as I've described in the penultimate issue of the Gertianum, preserved the traditions of the first half of the nineteenth century, they were the wiser and more brilliant thinkers. They were the ones whose arguments reached more deeply into people's souls than those of the materialists. But the materialists were more powerful. And the dispute wasn't settled by the evidence, but was a question of power. We only have to face the facts without any illusions. We must be quite clear that in order to reach the Spirit, we have to seek the way directly and not try to prove its existence through material phenomena. For whatever is in the spirit is also in matter. So if someone can't find the direct path to the spirit, then they can still find in matter all there is to know of the world. Since in the last third of the nineteenth century, even the most noble minds weren't able to find access to the spirit, but still had spiritual needs and longings, they got into a kind of insecurity about the whole human soul situation. And behind one or another of the really important personalities of the last third of the nineteenth century, their own instability shows up like a backdrop. Even though they were extremely intellectualistic, they were also extremely soulful, So they said to themselves, well, here is the material world, there are the ideas. Ideas are all we can find behind the phenomena of nature and of human beings. But then again, these people feel that ideas are only abstract and lifeless, and so they slid into uncertainty and instability. I'd like to demonstrate this through the example of one quite prominent personality, so that you can see in detail how this spiritual development which ultimately led to our present era really was. I'd like to show you the so-called Swabian Fischer, who is also called V. Fischer, as he writes his name with a V, unlike all the other academic Fischers, Swabian Fischer, the aesthetician. He was a product of that whole idealism of the first half of the 19th century. He couldn't endorse crude materialism. Everywhere behind material beings and material processes, he perceived ideas. Basically, he perceived, in the moral world order, a sum of ideas. He was concerned with discovering the nature of beauty. He sought the nature of beauty in the Hegelian sense, in the idea which shines out of matter as perceived by the senses. When an artist shapes matter, then something ideal shines through the form 
and it's not just a product of nature, which doesn't reveal an idea. When the artist designs matter, whether it is a metal or musical sound or words, so that we perceive something ideal in this design, then an idea appears in a sensory form, in a sensory figure, and that is beauty. It's possible that the idea is so powerful that we experience the sensory object as too impotent to express the greatness of the idea. When, for example, the sculptor has such a powerful idea that no sensory material can adequately incorporate this idea, so that we can only guess at the immense grandeur behind the form, then beauty becomes sublime. If the idea is too small, so that the artist can play with the material and the idea can express itself in all the genial treatment of the medium, then beauty becomes graceful. Thus grace and sublimeness are different forms of beauty. If people sense world harmony in a work created by an artist, then it could be either something sublime or something graceful, according to how the artist has worked. Then, We can see how, for example, with Jean-Paul, it often turns out that in his representation of world events, there is no harmony at all. We see only contradictions everywhere in the world, and harmony is something unreachable, hidden behind everything else. However, these world phenomena seem to concern us intimately. We see, for example, a little school teacher with an enormous sense of idealism and a great longing for knowledge, but he has no money to buy books. So in the second-hand bookshop he asks only for book catalogues instead of books, and so he has at least the titles, if not the books themselves. He can at least afford to buy blank paper, so he writes all these books listed by title in the catalogues himself. Then we notice in the poet's subject matter that there is a certain harmony after all, It's harmonious how he balances out the disharmony caused by the lack of money. But then again, the books that the schoolteacher writes for himself aren't as clever as those in the catalogues. The contradiction still exists. We're thrown back and forth between what should be and what is, but shouldn't be. If in our soul we can find our way through this intractable conflict, one contradiction following another, where we can't get beyond the conflicts and we wander from one discord to the next, if we can keep calm in our souls, then this is the mood of beauty we savor as humor. So it was this Swabian fisher, the V. Fisher, who glorified humor as an aesthetic because he lived in that time where a helpless humanity was confronted with such conflicts and with the opposition of spirit and matter. Faced with the impossibility of reaching world harmony through human intelligence, he wanted to repair all this through humor. And so he glorified humor. However, behind it there is also a kind of harmony without which there could be no humor, Otherwise, we would notice that we were being jollied along and taken for superficial fools. So, behind what Swabian Fisher wanted to enjoy in the world, and he is a leading personality in the second half of the 19th century, lies ambition, 
and as it wasn't possible to reach the spiritual in the world, but only ideas. This ambition has something terribly Philistine, a snickering humor behind which in reality there is no soul harmony, but something forced, a humor which, exploring the contradictions in the world, finds not a humoristic reconciliation, but just a foolish jumbling together. All this is connected to the fact that in the second half of the nineteenth century the more noble minds weren't able to find the spiritual, which is really behind the world, so that they looked for ways of discovering something about it and ended up in a kind of instability and desperation. And this desperation in the last third of the nineteenth century could only lead to the tragic, unhealthy situation of the beginning and first half of the twentieth century. Now Fisher, having almost tried to resist, still went and put himself, and it is him, on stage in front of the whole world in his novel titled Auch Einer, one two T O O. The hero of this novel is called Albert Einhardt, but Fischer shortens it to A E and then calls him Auch Einer. So the title of the novel is also Auch Einer. Now this one too is often ambitious. He wants to be someone, a proper human being, a one or one in quotes capital letter. He wants to be an individuality in a class of his own, unique. But then, despite his tremendous qualities, he only gets to be not one, but also one, two. And as I said, Fischer denied that Auch Einer is a portrait of his own self. In a sense, it's not. But still, Fischer has smuggled into the novel the disharmonies in his own soul. And these are the same discrepancies which existed in souls in general, in the last third of the nineteenth century. The novel one, two, consists of three parts. Readers aside again, this is one and then two is spelled T-O-O, so it's almost like one also. End of readers aside. The first part describes how Fischer gets to know Albert Einhardt, or Auch Einer. He's an interesting traveling acquaintance, the kind you don't meet every day. Now, you see, Fischer had himself not been able to recognize in the fact of the mystery of Golgotha and its significance for earthly evolution anything other than the development of an idea. The Christ was for him an abstract idea, which had permeated human evolution. And in reality, on Golgotha, in the body of Jesus of Nazareth, an abstract idea, Christ, was crucified. Here you can feel how lifeless the concept is. It even harks back to the times of David Friedrich Strauss and the like when they viewed religion as a collection of images for something that in reality is completely abstract, only ideas. So Christ and the story of Christ should be viewed as images. The emergence of the highest of ideas in earthly evolution, the crucifixion, is only really the appearance of an idea in a highly developed human being, and so on. All this was the subject of great intellectual efforts in the nineteenth century, and led to bitter disappointment in all the more profound souls of that time, 
because, behind all these ideas, they couldn't find real spirit. And human beings had, of course, a great thirst for the spirit, as they always do, especially when they have no access to it. And it is those thinkers who believe they can prove that there is no spirit, only matter or ideas, who have the greatest thirst. We could say that at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, the greatest minds had become tired of this intellectualistic pursuit of the answer to the questions, how do ideas function in nature? How do abstract ideas affect history? But a mercurial, shallow person like Arthur Drews could still produce something which had basically been discredited among those who were really capable of thinking. And so there survived into the twentieth century, in the personality of this mercurial, non-thinker, some of this construct, that an idea was crucified and not a real spiritual being. But from what I've said, you can gather that even for a thinker like Fisher, the spiritual was ultimately dissolved into ideas. In the end, these ideas and their abstractness haunted the world like a chimera. Everything we have in mythology or in religion, right up until the Christian religion, all this was only at best an image of an idea. Ultimately, those people who strove only to see the idea in the sensory image came to the conclusion that it doesn't really matter what sensory image we use to express the spinning and weaving of the idea in the material world. And to such an oddball as Albert Einhardt, or one too, who tries to reach the sublime at every opportunity, matter asserts itself in a remarkable way. Whenever he tries to reach the heights of spirituality, which in his case is really only the ideal, he gets Qatar, and then he has to sneeze or clear his throat loudly. There, matter brings its influence to bear. He never feels matter as strongly as when he has Qatar or even a corn on his foot. If you're such a thinker from the second half of the 19th century, you don't really know where you get hold of matter, which produces the images for the ideas. But you could grasp it best where it makes itself felt, where it overcomes the spirit. And in the end you even become like Albert Einhardt, or one too, a critic of all that already exists. Then Albert Einhardt has an idea. Those people who have only really treated matter in a neutral manner, they've made a mistake. Schiller described William Tell quite wrongly. It's just not possible. Matter is treated on much too high a level. We have to go much lower than that. We have to even go into the Qatar, if we really want to grasp matter. And so the proper composition would be if Tell didn't just reach the other bank in his boat, but capsizes, falls overboard, and is rescued by Gessler's men, who then beat him up. Then he escapes, falls into the water again, and gets a chill. So now he has a terrible cold, and just as he's about to pick up the crossbow, he has to sneeze. Gessler, the bailiff, can't say to him, quote, that's Tell's shot. No, he has to say, that's Tell's sneeze. Close quote. This is how Tell should be, says Albert Einhardt, one, two. We have to go more deeply, more fundamentally into materialism, 
if we want to be consistent. Also, there were all sorts of explanations of Othello, psychological interpretations. But Einhardt says we should see how Othello is always looking for a handkerchief, that he has a heavy cold that distresses him to such an extent that in the end he strangles Desdemona. Nothing more than a heavy cold. We just have to go more deeply into the material and find the pivotal point. This is what Fisher, with his humorous, soulful outlook, is searching for. He can't get beyond materialism. He can't disprove it, and so he at least wants to flout it in his soul. He can't flout hydrogen and oxygen, but he can definitely defy Qatar. And this is at least a viable attitude toward matter. All this also leads up to the point where Fisher can reveal how he got to know this strange oddball, Einhardt. At the time he is staying in a hotel, which several things point to this, isn't far from where we are today, somewhere in the mountains. And because he has Qatar, he gets into a spat with the hotel workers and lashes out at one of them. And suddenly, through this worldly affair, all the regrets of his life are revealed in his soul. And he even goes so far as to want to commit suicide. He tries to throw himself off the mountain. But at this moment, Fisher sees him, tries to save him, and falls down the mountain himself. Seeing this and forgetting that he wanted to kill himself, Einhardt rushes to Fisher's aid. This is how they get to know each other. This is not an everyday kind of acquaintance. They both tumble down the mountainside, and we can hear the curses, one, two, shouts as he expresses his feelings. In reality, we couldn't have heard it, because the sounds of the rushing stream were too loud, but we can hear fragments such as, quote, world, a cosmic cold, in solitude, spewing up, and world was, coughed up by the eternal, hawked up, brood nest of pest demons, close quote, and so on. Some of it we can hear, of course, he'll have said a lot more. Now you've got to know Fisher and his acquaintance, one, two. They couldn't communicate well at first, as both of them got a cold and had to keep sneezing. So it took them a bit longer. The first part of the book consists of this rather unusual way of getting to know someone on a journey. The second part is a creation of one, two, and consists of the story of a village built on stilts, describing the life of the people living there. We could argue at length about the era in which such villages existed. However, there are some clues in the text which lead us to the conclusion that one, two, set this stilt village in the area of the town of Turek. This town is situated near here, and at a certain time the villagers have to call on the services of a young bard from Turek. And this young bard from Turek is called Gufrud Kuller. But we can't really determine when this stilt village existed. One, too, tells the story of the stilt village, and we learn, for example, how the villagers provide for their religious needs. And this is exactly the manner in which Fisher and his mirror image, Albert Einhardt, view religion. Everywhere, material images as expressions of ideas. So, one aspect of the religion of the stilt villagers is that there was a time when nobody caught a cold. It was like paradise, as no one could catch a cold. 
but somehow the villagers weren't quite satisfied with this cold-free, uncatarl time, and so they fell prey to the temptations of the great god Influenza. This Influenza basically prospers in the cold, but works through fire, through overheating. So from this paradise, these stilt villagers fell under the spell of the god Influenza, and they got colds and kept having to sneeze, so then they called upon the witch of the world, who often appears to people as a white cow. You see, another pictorial manifestation, an image of the spiritual. The witch of the world advises them to move the village onto the lake as it gives off a damp, chilly mist. This would drive out the colds. The effects of the god influenza would be exposed and healed. This would only be possible in a village on stilts. But then a kind of heretic appears in the village. The villagers have a good leader, a druid. Although this druid isn't much cleverer than the other villagers, he has learned to preach the Kataral religion convincingly, and so he controls the whole village. But druids aren't allowed to marry, so he doesn't have a wife but a housekeeper, or Hixidur, who in turn dominates him and so has a lot of influence in the village. Now the heretic arrives and wants to teach the villagers a kind of enlightened religion, a religion with no god. However, the villagers have had experience not only of the good gods, but also of influenza and so on. And the druid, goaded on by Orhixidur, sets up a court of inquisition. The villagers were starting to despair of their druid, as he had instigated the building of a new stilt village deeper in the lake, but he can't explain why. So now they call in Guffred Culler from the nearest town, and then another scholar, Faradan Collar. Now the interesting thing is that when a stilt village was excavated, not in Turek, but in another Swiss town, one of the investigators was Ferdinand Keller, who came not from there, but from Turek. Just as the author doesn't allude to Gottfried Keller, but to Gofrid Kuller, so now there is a struggle between those people with the original religion, those with the Katara religion, and the heretic who wants to teach a religion with no God, a religion based on a moral world order. These are interesting battles. They escalate when the stilt villagers celebrate a sacrament corresponding to the Catholic or Protestant Confirmation, the Feast of the Handkerchief, whereby the children are brought into the church community. But, of course, according to village beliefs, they receive not what children are normally given at their confirmation, but a handkerchief. They need a proper handkerchief to help them on their life's path. All sorts of cultural struggles are going on. According to one two, these cultural wars weren't just raging in the world at large, but also in the stilt village. So, it seems to me that Fisher was trying, through a kind of forced humor, to describe this situation of not really being able to deal with materialism. I think in his heart he meant that whether in the end we accept those concepts developed by the materialistic art historians, which ultimately stem from a neutral kind of materialism, or others which are more explicit in their materialism, isn't important. What is important is to realize that both are materialistic concepts. Gottfried Semper, however, argues that when we want to explain the one 
or other architectural style. What is important is the working of the stone, the workability of the wood. But why should our focus be on the workability of the wood or the stone? Why should we start out from this material aspect? It's much more intelligent to look at how people are affected by the various architectural styles. Then we have the connection of these styles with the human being and with human evolution. The Greeks had this. Their architectural style was open on all sides. So that if you spent a lot of time in these buildings, you ended up with a proper cold. Those antique styles are pure catarrhal architecture. But in the Gothic buildings, you were more protected. You only caught a cold when you opened the windows. So they were hybrid Kataro architectural styles. And the ideal is in the remote future. Those are the buildings in which you never catch a cold. You can differentiate it nicely. This is how they do it in scholarly texts. Architectural style A, pure Kataro. Architectural style B, hybrid Kataro architectural style C, where you never catch a cold. This is the classification of styles according to 1-2. So you see, Fisher didn't know what position to take regarding materialism. He wanted to do it with humor, and so he seized on that aspect of materialism where human beings really feel their materialistic manifestation. This is what in fact lies behind the novel 1-2. In the third part, we have aphorisms written by Albert Einhardt, and so we get to know him better. We learn of his struggle with nature, his struggle with the spiritual, with the moral world order, with pure idealism. These aphorisms are quite witty. Sometimes we even get the impression that the rather pedantic Fischer has anticipated the ingenious ideas of Friedrich Nietzsche. There's really something quite extraordinarily clever in these aphorisms of Albert Einhardt. Albert Einhardt is quite an original personality. As we make his acquaintance in the novel, he's already retired, as he was something in the order of a police commissioner, a person of some importance. Fisher obviously wants to make the point that this alone is something to be taken with humor, an important police commissioner. But because he was important, He was once elected to the Chamber of Deputies as a representative, and there he gave an important speech. In this speech, the first fiery sentence is followed by a second fiery sentence, which, however, acts like an extinguisher on the first sentence. It's quite remarkable how the second sentence pours cold water on the first. Now, there are people present who belong to terrible old barbaric times, and who want to see corporal punishment in the military and in the schools. This leads us back to those times before idealism, when there was no metaphorical religion, when there was only a sheer moral agenda, religion without a God. In our times, we shouldn't embrace this kind of thing. In our times, there should be no corporal punishment. Indeed, we should completely eradicate corporal punishment. And there are a number of other things that should be eradicated now, too. We see here how barbarism still raises its head in our age. We can see how on the street cruel people torture animals, for example horses, which aren't made to be whipped. Or we see how dogs, which don't have hooves, but whose feet are differently constructed and not made for pulling carts, 
still have to pull carts. In short, we see how animals are cruelly treated, and I want to bring forward a motion here in the chamber that all who are cruel to animals will be publicly whipped. When the second fiery spark pours over the first like an extinguisher, then only a certain humor will come to our aid. This Albert Einhardt, this one too, is a real creature of the last third of the nineteenth century. And much of what Fisher himself felt as conflicts in his own soul, he brought out in the person of one too. But again, we shouldn't identify Fisher with one too, nor with the person who arrives in the stilt village as a heretic and was put before the court of inquisition. Otherwise we would arrive at some weird conclusions. Fisher had himself, not in Turek but in another town, officiated in a kind of heretic protectorate, and it didn't do him any good. But we must beware of some interpretations and of getting into an overly humorous position with regard to Fisher, for Fisher himself didn't want to accept the second part of Goethe's Faust, and he mocked the commentators, the interpreters, by writing a third part of Faust, in which he refers to those who commentated so brilliantly on the second part as Dutebolt Allegorovitz Mistefinsky, Interpretschik Allegorovitz Mistefinsky, or Symboletsi. And under these names he wrote the third part of Goethe's Faust, satirizing the commentators who saw in it a deeper wisdom. Now, we don't want to end up as an allegorowitch by calling into the trap of interpreting one, two as being the story of Fisher's own life. I think it's remarkable how in this last third of the 19th century we have, on the one hand, the deeply tragic Nietzsche, who was ruined by the contradictions which tore apart his soul, and on the other Fisher, who couldn't help but express the untenability of contemporary world views in the way he did in his novel One-Two. We could say there is even a kind of unity in this novel, as there is a kind of unity in certain materialistic attitudes of natural science. Because if you look at hydrogen or at oxygen, at zinc or at gold, they are all different, but you will find a kind of unity at the atomic level. They all consist of atoms, just put together in different ways, so that they produce different things. And here in this novel, there's also a curious unity. For example, one, too, had had an encounter with a woman whom he greatly admired, and then he meets her again when she's become a widow. It's a big moment for him. He owes the husband a great debt of gratitude for having died. He finds this person whom he admires so much as a widow in a hotel. They strike up a conversation. But this conversation is interrupted because one, too, has a terrible fit of sneezing. They can't finish their conversation. It's always the material world which hinders him, which rebels against his search for a life philosophy, for the spiritual. It's always the material which interferes and turns everything ultimately into matter. We can't help but sign up to materialism when we are just about to express the most sublime feelings of the human soul, and then we can't even finish the word ideal, but just start I'd and end up in a long sneeze. Here we see how matter asserts itself everywhere, and how the ideal just disappears in the face of the material. 
This novel, One Two by Fisher, is a significant contribution to cultural history, even though we must admit that a lot of it is quite superficial. On the other hand, this is also an adequate expression of the times, and it expresses exactly that as a spiritually minded person you could find no orientation for the needs of the human soul in the intellectual and material developments of the time. In your thinking you could only arrive at the most abstract ideas, as did one too, which then contradicted themselves, as did the abolition of cruelty to animals by whipping the perpetrators. The one idea kills the other, and if you turn to matter, you got it exactly where it was easiest to see, in the nasal mucus. Even though it wasn't very dignified, Fisher had still written a very interesting book about frivolity and cynicism. He never wanted to be frivolous and hated the tightly laced waists of the women of the times. But he still found something appropriate about cynicism, which he felt obliged to use to describe things effectively. So that's why he didn't shy away from describing worldly events in a materialistic sense, if not frivolously, at least in an unappetizing, but for his taste, humoristic manner. We have to try to grasp what lives in the various times, not just through abstract thoughts or through sentimentality, but in the atmosphere of those times. And I do think that some of the atmosphere of the last third of the nineteenth century lived in the soul of this man Fisher, as he wrote his novel, One-Two. The End of Lecture One